This episode of TTSA Talks is focused on new legislation that is proposed in the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2021 and includes the support for a UAP task force reporting at the unclassified level. Hey everybody, Tom DeLong here with To The Stars Academy. Uh, We have just started doing these podcasts and uh, it's been amazing so far. We've had a lot of people listening and uh, we're going to try and ramp up some of the conversations to include you guys in on some of the conversations that we have daily at To The Stars. Today we have Lou Elizondo, the former director of Pentagon's Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program and TTSA Director of Special Programs. We have Chris Mellon, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and TTSA National Security Advisor, who was an integral part of informing key policymakers on the Hill about the facts behind the UAP events and the need for legislation that requires better reporting. Um, Today, we're here to discuss some pretty big things that happened this week that we have been working on as a company um, for a few years now. Uh, Chris Mellon, when he joined to the stars, you know, I, I didn't really understand the workings of Washington D.C. I didn't understand the workings of the you know Department of Defense, and uh, I remember early on uh, when he joined that we had these discussions about we needed somebody that was present out there that understood how it worked that can get in there and get people the right information. Being kind of just like a normal civilian, I was thinking the U.S. government is this one kind of symbiotic organism. They all know this is what they say, this is what they know, this is what they do. Um, boy, I had a lot of education I needed to <laughs> have about about how the government actually works. Uh, not everyone really works together. Not everything is cohesive as you think. Um, and knowledge is power to some people. So, you know, trying to spread around information and get people the knowledge they need to kind of represent, you know, the American people better is, you know, it's not something that was on my mind. I was always thinking that it was different. You know, we only know what we see in the movies, really. So uh, when Chris Mellon joined, it was a it was a really big deal because I realized very quickly how badly we needed somebody like him to be able to do the bidding that we're all after, which is, you know, transparency and accountability and all these different things. Well, this week, we saw uh, some of the fruits of that labor come out. So uh, I wanted to spend some time today to talk about this unprecedented decision for the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence to introduce legislation that requests the creation of a UAP task force that will issue a public report on the phenomenon. Chris, this is like a huge deal. I mean, we all know it's a huge deal. We knew what you're working on. You know, I think people need to understand, you know, why this is so important. Because in people that study UFOs, like myself, we have all these things in our head that this kind of goes counter to like we're thinking okay they know everything and they're just not talking about it or whatever then all of a sudden everyone's going wait a task force now i think people need to understand what's the architecture here and why that's important sure and uh yeah i'm glad you asked that and if you notice in the language the committee itself refers to the fact a couple of times that there is no cohesive process for gathering and integrating this information and so that was one of the problems we were hoping to solve by, by getting the Senate to take this approach. Um, the best way to, to think about it, I think the easiest way, is to look at the way we handled terrorism before the establishment of the Counterterrorist Center. And so before 9-11, the FBI wasn't sharing information with the CIA. Had they done so, the hijackers might have been caught before that, that tragic event that took so many lives. So in the, in the after action, when the National Commission was studying what went wrong and what we could do better, one of the recommendations was create a, a fusion center so that 
all of the information from all of the agencies, regardless of who collects it, comes together in one place and a group of people have the benefit of that and can put the pieces together. You know, otherwise, it's like different people in different rooms with some puzzle pieces trying to put the picture together, but they're not they're not coordinating. They don't have all the pieces. So one of the things that this is going to do, uh, we hope, is to establish a focal point that everybody and there's so many different agencies and departments and uh, components that have relevant information that is not coming together right now and it can flow into one place. Uh, it also puts a more of a highlight and uh, accountability in one place. So the department now for the first time has to actually step up and put something on paper in black and white saying what's going on here, what this is about, do we have a handle on this? So it also establishes accountability, which has uh, been lacking, and that's crucial. And that's a legal thing. When you say accountability, what I've learned from you guys is that's not just like, hey, this is your job. That's like, this is, isn't this law, the way they have to operate and what they have to do? It's, it's a big deal. It, it is a big deal, but the, the report language is not, is not law. It's not binding legislation. And to... To a large degree, ultimately, there's a certain comedy between the executive and legislative branches, and there's a lot of precedence. So they usually honor these requests. And of course, if they don't, Congress ultimately has the power of the purse, and, and they can cut back their budget and use those kind of uh, techniques to, to give them the incentive to, uh, to comply. Um, so there's a little bit of a kabuki dance that goes on. It's not actually going to be uh, law in the same sense that, um, you know, we have with criminal statutes or something like that. But nevertheless, it puts down a marker and it gets the conversation going. And if they don't comply, the issue will be elevated. After 9-11, when they merged, you know, made the ODNI and had all the intelligence agencies work together, hopefully more cohesively, which I know you were probably a big part of it because that happened during your time, that legal structure provided kind of like a house that everyone has to live in together. I'm frustrated when I see now in the houses, like trying to subpoena somebody from the administration. They just go, no, I won't show up. <laughs> and you're just like, man, you really want people to be accountable. And I'm wondering if this task force and this focal point that you're describing comes together down the road, is there anything to make them act? Congress's leverage ultimately is the power of the purse. And that's what it comes down to. That's their, the club that they wield at the end of the day. Um, the, the DNI, uh, that position and that organization was actually mandated in law. That, that is law that's in statute that's on the books. Okay. These report requirements are not law in that sense, but it's an expression of Congress that we want and need this information and expect you to provide it. And if you don't, then of course that can escalate it. And, um, I believe that the DNI has uh, already expressed support and, and indicated the committee that he will look into the issue. I don't know that for certain, but I've heard okay. that. And uh, I believe during his closed confirmation hearing, there uh, was some discussion about this issue. At least that's what I've heard. So if you, and so maybe like the, um, an organization that is law that looks at subject potentially it's ways away, obviously. So it'd be kind of a step above a task force because the DNI is an actual organization. It's not a task force. That's the difference, right? That's right. The, the, the organization is not mandated in law. Um, the task force is not task force. You know, generally speaking, Congress does not 
like to mandate organizations in the executive areas. They like to give the commander in chief the flexibility to organize military forces and adapt to changing circumstances. And it's very hard to get new legislation to change the structure once you put something into law. So they don't do that often and easily. Um, task forces are something that are often uh, established, you know, independently by the military. And, and those structures are, are kind of fluid, but they're very powerful once they are established and very effective at combining information. And my last question before we introduce Lou here is on, um I know that one of your jobs was, for lack of a better way to describe it, you would audit a lot of the very secret, sexy programs of the United States and all the different areas that it was. And can you explain to people how organizations or or agencies might come across some kind of evidence or data or they saw something weird and how that wouldn't necessarily make it up to all the places us civilians just assume it's all going into a room with some guy with these... Spielberg touchscreens on the wall, you know, like what, mm-hmm. what happens? How does that, cause you know how that all works. Like, you know, the Navy sees something they capture on radar or they find something or they, something happens, but how, how come that doesn't already go to a, go somewhere with accountability? Uh, you're a good student, Tom. You, you described very well um, how fractured the system actually is in practice. There are a lot of what we refer to as stovepipes, which are sort of, vertical organizations that aren't integrated with any other organization. So information flows up through that organization, but it doesn't flow across to other organizations. It's not shared. So some technical systems have architectures that um, connect different organizations and and do share certain information. Um, But a topic like this, uh, there hasn't been guidance. There hasn't been an organization. You've had a stigma and, um, an unwillingness on the part of many people even to report these incidents when they happen. So there are a number of things that have to change in order for our government to really bring this into focus and and figure out what's really going on here. And this can help uh, at at all those levels. So Lou, uh, you know, when you were back at the Pentagon and you were running this program that was studying unidentified aerial phenomena, when I heard about this, I kind of thought of you guys like um, kind of a task force in a way, but I, it sounds like this, that was pretty different than what the Senate uh, Intelligence or the Select Committee, I want to say it correct. How do you say it? It's the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Yeah. Um, so what they're kind of suggesting is a different thing than, than the ATIP program. And how would that be different than what you were doing? Well, uh, Tom, I think it's, it's a great question. Uh, let me backtrack a little bit in order to answer that, that question a little bit more comprehensively. First and foremost, what we were doing was also mandated by Congress. Uh, in this particular case, as we know, ATIP was supported by, uh, by a bipartisan effort, both on the Republican and the Democrat side. Uh, obviously, Senator Harry Reid, Stevens and Inouye, and all those folks. Um, what you see now is a codification, if you will, the the in writing the establishment of a quote unquote task force. But in order to understand, uh, you know, where we're going with this, I think it's important first we understand what is a task force. And in terms of, of government, a task force is a temporary body established to, if you will, short circuit a lot of the bureaucracy in order to accomplish a mission. So when we had, for example, uh, our brave men and women in uniform in, in the desert, we established a, a counter IED task force. 
And the job of that task force or an ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance Task Force, this is a multi-agency organization that comes together to come up with very quick solutions. Okay. Um, so this is what you're seeing now in this, in this bill is Congress recognizing the need, a requirement to have a, a body of experts look at this problem and then report those findings back to Congress. Um, it's not really a lot different than ATIP, other than unlike ATIP, where you really didn't see it much in congressional language, uh, it was kind of very hush-hush. This is for the first time out on the open books. And I think what's also very important here is when you read this, this, this language that's in the bill, it says in there that they want, they want a, a, a report in 180 days at the unclassified level. So, Tom, that's revolutionary. Okay, what, what you're seeing here is an attempt by by certain members of Congress to be completely transparent with the American people and their constituents, right? Big deal, yeah. Um, so this is something that, that I think the folks like like Harry Reid and others wanted to do, but because of, as Chris said, stigma and other, other issues, uh, it just wasn't tenable at the time. I think you're beginning to see a shifting of the winds in, in a very dramatic way. And so although the, the capability of this task force is very similar in the intent of what we did in ATIP, uh, it's enjoying a much more, if you will, um, public level of acceptance, which we did not have uh, when when I was at ATIP. There's a couple things, like two parts of this story, the breaking kind of story at the Senate, um, that I think we should go over. One would be uh, dealing with, the, you know, people have heard the term threat thrown around with UFOs or UAP and and uh, there's a lot of kind of polarization that you see out in social media about that because, you know, there's a lot of people that believe they might have seen something or felt something that, that didn't seem like a threat at all. But then there's these reports where there were things that were, you know, we just don't understand enough about it. So I think it would be good, Lou, for you to explain why the word threat is thrown around with this. Because um, I, I think people think we're just like fear mongering or something. And I think, you know, once we can describe that part, the second part of the mechanism that maybe Chris can describe is what was needed to take that information to actually get this legislation proposed. So, you know, why do we use the word threat? Like where, where did that come from associated with this subject? So people understand why it's, why it's out there. No one can tell you unequivocally something is or is not a threat until you have all the data. Okay, so frankly, we don't have all the data yet, but let's look at where this program resided. It resided in the Department of Defense. Okay, by definition, department, entire organization that is aligned to defending your national security of a country. So, Department of Defense. It's not, you know, Department of Humanitarian Assistance. Uh, it's it's not the Department of of All Seeing Kumbaya. It is the Department of Defense. So, everything that the department does is aligned to identifying real perceived or potential threats. Okay. I think where this falls into the category of is potential threats, because we don't have enough information to establish whether something is or is not a threat. So at least from my time in ATIP, we had to, to work under the auspices that everything is a potential threat until we are sure it is not a threat. And frankly, you want your Department of Defense to look at things through that optic. We're not a humanitarian assistance organization. When you look at what the job is of the Department of Defense, it's to very quickly identify and neutralize a potential adversary. Um, so it shouldn't be a, you know, a surprise to anybody. Now, what we're trying to do in the government is determine, 
is it a threat? And if so, to what degree or what level is a threat? And I think it's important, you know, when you have this conversation, if you say to somebody, look, uh, it's nine o'clock in the evening, you're sitting on your back patio, and all of a sudden you see a strange uh, shadow of a person uh, walking through your backyard. Is it a threat? Well, we don't know. It could be your neighbor coming over for a cup of sugar. Uh, it could be a potential intruder looking to determine if they can break into your house, right? So for that reason, I think it's prudent that we take the approach to determine whether or not these things are a threat. When you look at what we are seeing from an intelligence perspective, there seems to be key interests in our military capabilities and specifically our nuclear capabilities. If that's the case, and we don't know what they are, we don't know how they work, we don't know who's behind the wheel, we don't know what their intentions are, and somehow they can operate without impunity in our, in our airspace, I think it's a safe bet to say, okay, whatever is doing that could be a threat if it wanted to be a threat. So let's try to figure out what, what this is. And I, I think probably Chris can shed also some additional insight. I know he has his own perspective on this. Uh, we are not fear-mongering. You know, we're not trying to go out and, if you will, saber-rattle and get people energized and say, oh, you know, we need to go out with pitchforks and, and torches, and this is a, an absolute threat. The bottom line is we don't know. And anybody who says that they know for sure it's not a threat, they don't know what they're talking about because they don't. I don't, I don't think any of us at this point really know whether or not definitively this is or is not a threat. So I think just to be on the, on the side of safety is that we go ahead and, uh, you know, presume something with this type of technological capability could be a threat should it want to be a threat. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Chris. So let me mention a couple of things. Um, with regard to the threat, and this arises in the context of our show on Identified as well. We, we emphasize military uh, witnesses and experiences largely because they're so credible and they often involve uh, sensor information and so forth. So those are often the best cases. And um, people have asked sometimes, uh, you know, why such a strong emphasis there? Why do you use the, the term threat? When I met Lou, this, this was the situation. Imagine a military base with extremely sensitive uh, capabilities inside, including uh, nuclear weapons, a high fence around it with barbed wire, posted no trespassing, and security personnel are seeing strange dudes that aren't American military walking around inside the perimeter. And no, it's not getting reported, it's not going up the chain. And not only is it happening, it's happening on a recurring basis. And week after week, and, you know, pilots are reporting that, well, that's what was going on in the air. These are restricted military areas where our carrier battle groups are doing workups and so forth. And they're being penetrated on an ongoing recurring basis. And nobody in the chain of command is being informed. And that's, that's unacceptable. That, that's incredible. That's a breakdown in the system. So that was one of the things that, that motivated us. And, um, and got us engaged at the outset, and that's why we consider it a potential threat. Um, that's just not acceptable. So um, in terms of, of uh, how we proceeded on this, Lou and I had been around the department long enough, and anybody who, who has, I think, would agree, it's very, very hard to make big changes from the inside. There are so many people that can say no. Uh, if you put a memo together for the SECDEF, for example, it'll go to like 18 different offices and it'll take months. And any one of them can say, oh, I've got a question about this part and send it back. And it can take years. I've literally seen that happen 
in the counterterrorism area before our Marines were killed in Beirut. There was an individual on the SecDef staff who had been proposing some changes and people kept changing positions. It was almost two years had elapsed and his paper had still not gone forward in his recommendation. That's how bad it is. So we knew there needed to be a forcing function from the outside if anything serious was going to happen. And Lou, to his credit, had done everything possible to work through the system on the inside. And I had, had tried to assist by making some introductions to people who were close to General Mattis, still couldn't get it done. And it was at that point that it became clear either, you know, we, we give up and kind of throw in the towel or take it to Congress and, and the people and the press. And the stakes were so large, uh, Lou just couldn't accept that, that this was not going to happen, that this was going to continue to be ignored, that the risks were so potentially great. So that's why we, we use that terminology on unidentified. And people, when, we're, when our second season begins on July 11th at uh, 10 p.m. on Saturday night, people will again see uh, a lot of military folks bringing forward completely new stories and, and additional information that, that's never been uh, brought to light before that I think will further underscore why we consider this a potential threat. I wanted to mention also in terms of how this differs from ATIP, and Lou can add more on this if he likes, but from talking to the ATIP people, looking at what they did, I think it's pretty clear they did not have the access to sensitive classified Air Force information and large volumes of, of classified information that were in, in different uh, stovepipes, as I said earlier. And this, the Congress is making it very clear here, they want all hands on deck. They want all these organizations to contribute everything they have, regardless of what compartment it's in. They want uh, the full picture to be incorporated into these results. So this is going to be uh, a very different sort of uh, process and analysis in that regard. Tom, let me let me step in there, too, for a second. Um, Chris is absolutely right. The lessons learned we we gained from being part of the ATIP effort. Uh, we were able to take those lessons learned, and Chris was very clever in that draft language to ensure that um, you know we we don't make the same mistake twice, and basically give this new effort, this task force, real teeth. Right, the ability to to break down some of these silos and these stovepipes that Chris talks about, which are by the way very real, and and hindered our progress tremendously while at ATIP, even though we had a lot of authority. Uh, there was still a lot of authority we didn't have. And so what you see now in this draft language uh, that is now being proposed in the bill is kind of a, if you will, a remedy to, to some of those shortcomings that we had in ATIP when I was part of the ATIP program. And I think Chris had a front row seat to a lot of our frustration in the program, uh, saw to the levels that we were briefing this information and the work we were doing with some of the interagency organizations out there as well. And at the end of the day, we were unsuccessful moving the ball over the finish line. Um, we made great progress uh, moving the ball forward, but it was done in uh, fits and spurts. And unfortunately, there wasn't a consistent level of support across the intelligence community and across our, our national security apparatus. So that's why I think this language you see now that's coming out and has become quite public um, is, is, is fundamentally different. Uh, because it fixes a lot of the things that were wrong uh, with the system when we were part of ATIP. 
I remember when we started to the stars and our partner, Jim, he was asking me and I said, look, I, I can imagine that there's some pretty kind of scary, unnerving things about this subject for people that don't know anything about it or what it possibly could be doing or, you know, the, the sky's the limit. Um, but I still feel like it's part of nature, you know, so it's like trying to hide the fact that there's like hurricanes, you know, it's, there's things out there that could be stronger than us, more advanced than us, or that we can't totally control, but it, we still should know about it. I mean, you, obviously you share that opinion because we're working to have everyone know about it, but how do you think the public's going to take it one day if this was to all come out in the way that we're working towards? Uh, I'd like to take a shot at that and um, also uh, say one thing. I want to be clear. The, the language that uh, is in the report is not language that I drafted. Um, I did draft language and did provide it to the staffers, but what is reflected there is, is their own wording and, and their own uh, crafting. But um, in terms of, of what may happen and the impact, um, I'm concerned and there's a possibility there may not be a public report. Uh, we're not there yet. Um, this has to go to a conference between the House and Senate, and it has to go to the, the president for signature before the Intelligence Authorization Act becomes law. I don't know if there will be pushback and, and if there is uh, of what nature. I, I don't want to, uh, but we can't assume that, that things may not change. Uh, there may be pressure to do that. So I'm concerned about that. And I just want to mention that because it's, it's not a done deal yet. Right. If, if we do get a, a public report, which I certainly hope we will, we're all believers in, in openness and transparency here. I think it's in everybody's best interest, including the Defense Department's. And I, I've reminded some of my friends over there that if the Sputnik Russian space launch back in uh, 57 had been kept from the public, we might not have had a space program and we might, might not have been the first people to land on the moon. And we didn't, didn't beat the Russians in the Cold War because we were better at protecting information, but because we were better moving it and we were more efficient. Tom, I'm going to jump in too real quick because you said something very interesting that some people say, well, you know... Uh, natural occurring phenomena and whatnot. Um, okay, fine. But, you know, we spend millions of dollars each year in our country trying to predict when the next major earthquake is going to hit. And that's a natural occurring phenomena that we deal with all the time. Uh, and yet we want to be prepared. We want to know. And I think uh, ultimately this issue is like no other issue, whether natural or, or not natural. Um, it, you know, it's it's better to know than to not know. and. Um, you know, I, I think we're well beyond now the, I think we've crossed the Rubicon in the conversation that whether or not these things are real, they are real, they are there, it's a fact. The question is, what are they? And and do they pose a threat? Uh, and that answer, we still don't have, uh, have, have anything solid to go on other than uh, more and more data that we continue to obtain on a, on a regular and routine basis. Uh, I, I believe that having that information allows our leadership in our country to make informed decisions. That's what we pay them to do. And I think transparency is, is, is very important when it comes to this topic, because ultimately this is a topic that, that affects every one of us. You know, let, let's not forget that government derives its power and authority from the people. Okay. Not the other way around. The government works for us. The government serves us. We don't serve the government. And I think it is incumbent upon the government, 
when you're talking about something like this that affects all of us to have a conversation. You know, there's this, it's not unlike any other topic of concern, whether it's uh, civil unrest or it's uh, healthcare or it's uh, lack of education or, you know, poverty in America or anything else. It, this is a topic that doesn't get better the longer you keep a lid on it. I think we need to have a conversation. And the sooner we have this conversation and, and keep it in the open public, in the eye of the public, the better. I, I do believe that some, that sunlight is, is, is a great antiseptic. I, uh, I agree with you. And uh, I think most people do. So that's why I think most people are excited about the stuff that we've been able to pull off and, and what we see coming. It's pretty, it's a tidal shift. I mean, it's, I've been looking at this stuff for decades and I know you guys obviously have too, but it's like this kind of stuff uh, with the Senate and, and, and so on and the task force. It's like, it's just, wow. You know, um, we have some questions from, from some people, um, somebody named Dan, he was wondering how do they decide what's classified and unclassified and uh, will our AI be directly involved in the data collection effort they go through? What do you guys think about that? The people who put the report together, the information comes to them in a classified form in various levels of classification, depending on the source. So the originator of the, the information classifies it at the appropriate level. They then take all of that, form their analysis, and if they want to prepare an unclassified report, they've got to find a way of expressing the content of the conclusion without disclosing anything that might betray or compromise some of our sensitive sources. So that will be the goal in this effort. That is often done. It's, it's done on a, on a daily basis uh, somewhere in the government, probably every day, that they take something classified and render an unclassified form for a policymaker to be able to use at a press conference or whatever. So they know how to do that, and there's no reason they can't do it in this case. And a source could be like a satellite, too. It doesn't have to be like – I think we think of sources oh. – it's not human sources. It's, it's mostly technical sources these days, overwhelmingly. Satellites, signals intelligence, electronic intelligence, such as radars, uh, measurement and signals intelligence is referred to in the language, which is even a more specific subset of certain kinds of sensors. So, yes, it's very heavily technical these days. Uh, overwhelmingly, the information uh, obtained is, is acquired uh, through technical systems. As far as his other part of his question about the AI, I mean, our goal has always been to build this system and help out government partners however we can. And uh, since we're a little early on that, we have uh, built the beta version of it, um, but it's not something we've deployed with any government partners yet. And, uh, and we hope to. Um, I think that we have something really compelling for them to consider using. But until we're there, I think to answer Dan's question, it's a little bit too early to say that it's going to help in that regard. But uh, from John, uh, do you think this will manage to identify further hidden SAPs that study elements to do with the phenomenon? Uh, would this fall into the annexed off classification? So it sounds like he's talking about this task force might pull up other things uh, that may or may not be there. Do you guys think that that, that could potentially happen? I, uh, I want to address this because... There are a lot of misunderstandings about how the department and Congress manage these special access programs. Um, there is actually a registry, and anytime you establish a special access program, you are required to enter that into this registry. There's a comprehensive system for tracking those, for monitoring them, 
I served on the committee that reviewed them, and they are all briefed to Congress. So Congress knows about all of these, and some of them are very, very limited. It may be only a handful of members of Congress, but the law requires that. Now, the president could, in some uh, select cases, assert a constitutional right, but I don't recall that ever happening in the case of any special access programs that I was involved with. There were some that were briefed to only four members of Congress as provided for by Section 119 of Title 10. But um, they're not going to be finding things that senior people in the department, you know, that were not accounted for already. It's a question of getting access to things that um, senior people know exist and making sure that people doing the work have access to the right special access programs to get information they need to make this judgment and this determination. One of the great things I, I think that TTSA is doing is this, it's like kind of educating people on how the government works so they don't get so, you know, angry, you know, so like the American people, me being one of them, I used to get so angry, go, what's going on? Tell me what I want to know. But, you know, the more I learn about the bureaucracy and, and the oversight and all that kind of stuff, I've, I've become more grounded uh, in my thoughts, um, largely because you guys, you've took me out of the clouds a little bit, still in the sky. Tom, can I go back also for a second? Because I failed to answer adequately one of the questions you asked, which was how do we manage to, to, to get the committees to go along with this? And really, there, there was no particular secret sauce. It was really the Navy pilots that put this over the top in our military personnel. And the Congress has just been kept in the dark on this. And it was largely a matter of just getting the right people in front of them and um, informing them. They had not been informed, kept in the dark for years. So that's what really, I think, made the difference is they're sitting down with credible military personnel, fighter pilots, et cetera, and hearing this from firsthand and seeing some of the videos and so forth. And then they began to realize and understand this is not, not some flaky thing with people with tinfoil hats. The cool thing about the pilots, that, which I didn't understand, again, following your guys' lead here, is they are trained observers. There's millions of dollars spent on them before they ever even reach a plane. They've gone to college. They're officers. They're in charge of multi-million dollar weapons platforms, you know, sometimes over American cities, sometimes carrying nukes over half the world. I mean, these guys, we should trust them for all the reasons that people kind of make fun of somebody that saw something in the sky. Well, these are the ones that are trained to see things in the sky. So I think that was really smart. And, and it worked. Like you said, it worked. It, you put, you can't discount them. I mean, it's like to discount what they're saying would discount all the training and everything we do with these guys in the first place. So in, in addition to that, um, in some cases, for example, with the Nimitz incident, there was independent technical data that corroborated exactly right. what Dave Fravor and others were, were saying and seeing. So you had multiple sources of information that all agreed perfectly on, on what was happening. And that's, that's, you know, very hard to ignore. Here's another question from Ryan. We got about two more questions here. Um, I've heard from several current Navy pilots that absolutely no new protocols have been given to pilots about reporting UAPs. It's been over a year since the Navy announced this and they still haven't implemented the new protocol. What's up with that? And thank you for all you've done and continue to do at GTSA. That's that's news to me. I my understanding is the protocols have been issued and that uh, they're getting some feedback from the pilots, uh, at least in the, especially in the Navy or at least in the Navy. I, I don't know, Lou, if you're hearing something different. 
No, actually, I'll uh, I'll reiterate the same thing, Chris. It's my understanding that some of that policy guidance has been disseminated, and and pilots are actually responding to that guidance. And it's by the way, not just not just pilots. So, um, I do think that uh, you know just because a policy is written. Uh, and disseminated doesn't necessarily mean you know everybody and their moms can have a, a chance to see it. Um, a lot of these policies can be, particularly when you're talking about the Department of Defense, you know they can they can restrict the dissemination of certain policy, even if it's not classified. They can put it under the umbrella of, of what they call FOUO for official use only, and basically that means you can't share this information. You know, even though it's not necessarily classified. Um, it's still sensitive. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily expect to see uh, a, a policy that comes out of the Navy um, broadcast, uh, you know, throughout the civilian world. Um, it's probably going to stay within those restricted channels uh, within the department and those who, who need to have uh, have available that policy so they can do what they need to do with it. Um, I'm kind of thinking, too, would there ever be a case where they have this policy um, the pilots might not necessarily hear about it, but if they report something now, that policy has that Correct. report that goes. So it's not necessarily being told to the pilot, maybe? Yeah. And we do know for sure that there are certain elements within the USG, within the US government, that are now actively reporting this type of information through the appropriate channels. Cool. I, I won't elaborate what those channels are, uh, because frankly, it's you know it's not for me to... to to have sure. that discussion, but but uh, information is going up, and it's relevant information, and it's new information. Um, you're right. The, the the intel officer for the squadron, if if he's informed of an incident by a pilot, he at least should know should now know what to do with that information. Okay. See, that's something I wouldn't even know, and people don't know that there is an intel officer for a squadron of planes. You know, that's that's probably why this person is saying this is like, well, the pilots don't know anything. No, it would be that particular person. So those are things that we just don't know as civilians. So that's interesting. Um, I think this is a pretty important question. This kind of touches on something that I've always wondered. Uh, It's from Arturo. Why is the air force silent on this subject when they are the ones who dominate our skies? Also, is it a fact that many within our government or DOD are scared to approach or even entertain this subject because of religious reasons? It's kind of a loaded question both ways, uh, you know, but I would be one that goes, you know, the Air Force, that's, this is kind of their jurisdiction. The Navy has really stepped up. And, and I, I just, you know, that made me really proud when the Navy did that. I was like, that's what the kind of leadership we want. How come the Air Force hasn't, you think? I know Lou wants to answer this question. <laughs> uh, I do. Uh, let me give you, um, I, I have a personal opinion and then I have, I think, uh, more of a professional response. So let me, let me stick with a professional response. When you look at the job of the air force, um, the air force is primary. Yes, they're, they're all over the place and they fly airplanes, but they're relegated primarily to those concentrated areas where you have an air force base. Now let's look at that in juxtaposition to the Navy. The Navy is all over the world, but they have airplanes on boats and these boats are never in the same place twice. These these are these are think of an air for a mobile air force base. You have everything you have at an air force base, but rather than being locked somewhere in the middle of Ohio, uh, this thing is mobile and it's it's constantly moving. So, I think it makes sense that you know Navy is really taking the lead on this, just because they have that global presence. Yes, Air Force does too, 
But again, they're relegated to specific geographic spots. You can only fly a plane for so far before you have to come back to base. Uh, and that can limit you to some degree. When you're the Navy, you bring your base with you. So you really are all over the world, over the land, over the sea, and everywhere else. Um, so I think that may be one of the reasons. From a personal perspective, yeah, I, I'm pretty frustrated that the Air Force hasn't stepped up yet. The question is why? Now, I have a, an inkling uh, of an idea of probably why. Um, I don't know for sure. Um, some of it may be due to stigma and previous involvement into things like Blue Book, where, quite frankly, you know, they, they got stung pretty bad. Um, it could also very well be that they are involved. And that involvement hasn't yet come to light. Uh, that's also very, very true. I know Chris has some ideas on it. I want to be careful I don't say too much because when I was in ATIP, it would be disingenuous of me to say that we didn't do anything at all with the Air Force. But, you know, I will share with you that, that I remain a little frustrated that, that we couldn't do more with them. Chris, any ideas? Yeah, so I'll offer a couple of thoughts and, and can't claim to, to know entirely why, uh, why they haven't been uh, more engaged. And it is a really good question, uh, in part because some of the Navy reports from these uh, restricted uh, flight zones, Air Force pilots operate in those same areas with the same radar systems in some cases. And they haven't been reporting or sharing the same information. Um, and uh, so that, that really pointedly raises an issue. Um, I think in general terms, it's easier for the Navy to say we've got a problem with our airspace and people entering our airspace than it is for the Air Force to acknowledge that. For the Air Force to acknowledge that is to, to uh, acknowledge, at least in some sense, mission failure. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they're responsible for aerospace defense. So that's a much more uh, bitter pill to swallow for them. It's, that's more, uh, more concerning, more difficult, more disruptive. It's, that's not something seniors want to hear. And everybody at the lower levels knows that. Um, I think the Air Force is also a bit more conventional. Um, our military, unlike uh, some others, emphasizes conformity. All military forces do to a degree, but... Um, I think the U.S. military compared, say, to the, uh, the British or the Israeli uh, armed forces stress that, that even more. And it's harder for people. People are more concerned about um, doing things that might be considered irregular, out of line or something. Uh, even though they're told, think outside the box, what really speaks is actions. And if people who do think outside the box get penalized, you know, that's the end of that. You can talk to your blue. Um, in terms of the issue of uh, fundamentalists, um, uh, I do know some officers uh, and incidents that have occurred where uh, expressed the view that uh, brought religion into the conversation. Right. And um, it, it doesn't belong there. I don't think it happens very often, but uh, I do think it's true that that has happened. I've heard accounts from people who've been told, you know, oh, that's demonic or something. And you know, we shouldn't be studying that and that sort of thing. So hopefully that's the exception and doesn't happen very often. I, I will tell you, Tom, that Chris is absolutely right. I witnessed it firsthand uh, and so did my colleagues at ATIP at the time. Uh, there was a small minority but very influential uh, group of individuals that this uh, topic rubbed them the wrong way philosophically uh, and theologically. And it, it 
created a tremendous challenge uh, for what we were trying to accomplish. The last thing I'll say to wrap up this uh, awesome conversation is my mom is like super religious and uh, I would have a hard time thinking how she would in her own belief system, connect this to her belief system, you know, but it's, uh, I can get it though. I mean, when it, it kind of, it's how people govern, you know, their own philosophies on life and what this is all about. And those are strong. We see it in our politicians all the time. So I, it makes sense that some people are like that, but at the end of the day, like you said, there's muddy footprints that are in your house. You got to know who's putting them there, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think that's a really good way to look it, at it. It would be tragic and ironic if we found out that some of these things were Russian or Chinese and we hadn't been investigating because somebody thought they were demons or something. Yeah, I know. I mean, that, that's just not an appropriate mindset yeah. in this context. I agree. You know, with, with military sensor systems are detecting things flying around aircraft carriers. Well, we will be doing a lot more of these. Thank you guys so much for your time. And, uh, and let's, uh, let's look forward to the next discussion. And uh, you guys have an awesome day. And to everybody listening out there, thank you for being a part of To The Stars and paying attention and helping us get these things uh, out to the world. Um, and then we'll follow it up with all the great films and technologies and everything else that we're looking at doing uh, and hopefully make this world a better place along the way. Thanks, everybody. Great. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much, Tom. For more information behind the episode, please read the footnotes to this podcast on tothestarsacademy.com.